Uh, we're finishing up this series, uh, wrapping it up today, called Church Impossible. And we've been talking about the necessity of our church, uh, of all churches, we need to uh, uh, do our job in being inviting to people, in being hospitable to when, when they come, being worshiping when we gather together, spiritually growing, serving God. And today, we're going to talk about giving, uh, giving financially. And uh, today, I want to just start with the scripture uh, that if you look at it, it doesn't really have a lot to do with finances. But it's in John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. We'll just touch on this briefly. Jesus said, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Jesus said, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. You know, today, as uh, we uh, tackle this topic, uh, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit strange. I'm going to ask you not to believe me just because I'm standing behind the pulpit. Um, I want you to believe me because I show you what God's Word says. And I think if we're not careful, our eagerness to accept what is said from the pulpit without testing it according to Scripture can cause us to drift into untrue and unbiblical doctrines and practices. And so we're wrapping up this series called Church Impossible with this message on giving. And I'm going to address some questions, some very important questions about giving. I'm going to talk about why we should give financially to support the church. Secondly, I'm going to talk about what we should be trying to accomplish by giving financially. What are our goals when we give? Or do we just give out of habit? Um, who should make financial contributions to the church? When should we give financially to the church? How should the money that the church receives be handled? What should our attitude be when we give? And finally, I'm going to answer the uh, last question, which is, to some Christians, the most important question, but I think to God it's not. How much? Should we give? And it's that last question, how much do we need to give, that I need to spend some time on first. Because the answer is not exactly what you think. There's a, uh, there's a doctrine that's very prevalent today, um, and I call it the mandatory 10% doctrine. And uh, I've been a Baptist all my life. I've been a Baptist before I've been saved. Uh, I mean, I've been in Baptist churches since day one. Um, when I was born I was born across the street from uh, a Baptist church all my life I've loved God's people and always will and I've been taught from day one this uh, doctrine that I call the mandatory 10% doctrine what is it it's simply this that the Bible teaches that tithing means that Christians must give a mandatory 10% of their income to a church and uh, and so this is what I've always been taught and I've taught it myself I never really questioned it for many years. I taught it because it was simple. I taught it, be and I believed it because it was simple. It made sense. Um, there's nothing easier than taking your income and dividing by 10, seeing what you ought to write to the church, you know, for your check. Uh, so it made sense, and the Bible talks about tithing uh, in, in a lot of different places, and so it seemed to be a very biblical idea that 
Scripture mandates that Christians give 10% of their income to the church. You know, there's a lot of pastors and theologians that have taught the mandatory 10% doctrine. Just give you a little history. It began with John Chrysostom around 375 A.D., and Jerome and Augustine taught that. Uh, Augustine, one of the greatest church theologians, around A.D. 400. Uh, but here's how they came to that idea. And you might find this interesting. Each of these guys, in their hearts and in their writings, they taught that Christians ought to give much more than 10%. They knew what the New Testament taught. And uh, the problem was that Christians weren't even giving as much as Jews. That believing uh, believers in God were not giving as much as those that were still believing in Judaism. And so these guys, John Chrysostom and Jerome and Augustine, they compromised. And they admitted they were compromising. And they basically said, this is what the New Testament actually teaches, but we'll take 10%. Please give at least 10 And so that's how uh, the doctrine of tithing really got going. And if you might think, well, that's not a real biblical reason for it, uh, you'd be right. Uh, but this mandatory 10% doctrine uh, has also been uh, uh, supported by uh, many people that I love and respect. <laughs> Billy Graham and Herschel Hobbes, great Baptist, W.A. Criswell. I mean, I went to Criswell College, uh, named after him. John Piper, Randy Alcorn, Larry Burkett, Charles Stanley, and David Jeremiah. There's some great proponents of the mandatory 10% doctrine. Um, and with so many influential proponents of this, the doctrine must be effective, right? Don't you think it's effective? We've been teaching it for almost 2,000 years in some circles. As Baptists, we hammer it home. But here's the result. The result is that American Christians give, on average, 2.5% of their income to the church. 2.5%. That's how much we actually give. After well over 100 years of very published works on the mandatory 10% tithe, the result is we give 140th. Which, by the way, is what the Quran teaches Muslims to give. And so there's a lot of good Baptist Muslims out there that are, that are given that much. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, I, I, I could take that idea, that fact, and I could take the implication of taking something from the Mosaic Law and placing it on the shoulders of Christians and saying that it's mandatory, and I could come to some pretty startling conclusions if I wanted to. I could say that, that the mandatory 10% doctrine has caused Christians actually to be ungenerous. I could say that it adds legalism to the gospel. I could say that it diminishes our understanding of the grace of God. The real question, regardless of how effective teaching the mandatory 10% doctrine is, is this, is it biblical? Is it biblical? You know, years ago I started studying this question, and my first clue that the answer was not something that I expected was found in this simple fact. In the entirety of the New Testament, there's no command anywhere to tithe. It's not there. Not from Jesus, Paul, anyone. There's no command that says, Christians, you should give 10% of your cash, your income, to the church. It's just not there. I eventually discovered that there are 
even though there are many influential pastors and theologians throughout church history that teach the mandatory 10% doctrine, there are many who do not. A large number that say that it's not biblical, starting with a guy by the name of John Wycliffe. You know who he is? He's the first guy to translate the Bible into English. Martin Luther did not teach the mandatory 10% doctrine. The Anabaptists, our forefathers. John Smith, who's known as the first Baptist in England, uh, did not teach the mandatory 10% doctrine. Roger Williams, the first Baptist in America, did not teach the mandatory 10% doctrine. Neither did Charles Spurgeon. Neither did Charles Ryrie, more in our day. John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, J. Vernon McGee, and David Rhodes. I don't know how his name ended up on the list. Um, I didn't say they're all equally influential, but um, nevertheless, I want you to understand that although I may be, uh, seem to take a minority view on this topic, it's not without other people's support, and I'm not out on an island by myself. By the way, if you read the Baptist Faith and Message, any one of them, the 1925 version, the 1963 version, or the one we got back there, the 2000 version, you won't find the word tithe in it. Why? Because the guys who wrote it knew. They knew that Scripture didn't mandate it. And so at the end of the day, if I don't convince you, that's okay. We can disagree on this issue, and I'll still love you, even though you may be wrong. We can still fellowship together. Uh, but when I think, honestly, when I think, when you see what the Bible actually teaches, I believe that you'll draw closer to God. I really do. And that's worth more than anything. So let's talk about it for a minute. What is the tithe, biblically speaking? Not what you think it is, but what is the tithe? The word tithe in Hebrew simply means a tenth. That's all it means. It means a tenth. And the law given to Moses, the tithe meant this. It was a mandatory 10% donation of the increase of the land. If you grew crops on the land, it was 10% of the land. If you had animals, cattle, for, for example, sheep on the land, it was 10% of those animals. It was whatever came from the land. What land? Any land? The land of Israel. The land that God had promised his people. And so the tithe was a literal gift of grain or animals. It was never money. It never was. Uh, we think it's money because that's what we deal with. But it was never money. It was always animals or crops. This was done multiple times throughout the year. There were three main tithes uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Did you know that? Three main tithes. There was the Levitical tithe. It was given for the Levite priests who had no land. And so people would donate their animals and donate, they'd make these mandatory donations of their animals or their grain to the Levites who needed support if they were going to do God's work. There was the festival tithe. What was that for? That's so the people of God could party. Honestly. That's so they could have the Passover. That's so they could have uh, the tabernacle feast. That's so they could celebrate Pentecost. They brought the tithes in each year for that as well. Then once every three years, there was a thing called the charity tithe or the poor tithe. And it was brought in for those that had little means in order to support them. And so you see this chart of what people actually had to give. Year one, they had to give the Levitical tithe and they had to give the festival tithe. 
they gave 20%. That's a tithe, 20% every year. Year two, 20%. Year three, 30%. You had to give the charity tithe. Mandatory. Year four, 20%. Year five, 20%. Year six, 30%. Year seven, we know what that's called. That's the year of Jubilee. That's why everyone loved Jubilee. Woohoo! We're free for a year. That is what tithing really is. Now, the Israelites gave more than that. They gave, this is just their tithe. This had nothing to do with their free will offerings, had nothing to do with their animal sacrifice, the blood sacrifices, none of that. This is tithes. It's different than uh, other offerings. And so they gave more. Some theologians say they gave between 30 and 50% every year of what they had. But you also have to remember this. They had a theocracy. They were supporting their government, too. And so, you know, we have a we have an obnoxious uh, tax system that taxes us um, that we ought to take into account. But let's think about this. What, what about people that didn't have crops or cattle? Were they required to tithe? No. Carpenters, such as the famous one you may be thinking of, uh, were not required to tithe. Fishermen were not required to tithe. Why? It was crops and cattle. It was sheep. It was animals or it was from the land. Tradesmen, other non-farmers, other herdsmen were not required to tithe. Priests were not required to tithe. They didn't have their own land. And the poor, they were not required to tithe. Probably couldn't afford it anyway, but they didn't have their own land. But let's say I was a rancher, a farmer, uh, not, not a farmer of, of grain, but let's say I was a rancher. Big question, how do you give a tenth of an animal? I mean, that's gonna hurt, that poor thing, right? You wouldn't give a tenth of an animal. Listen to what Leviticus 27.32 says. It says, Every tenth animal from the herd or flock which passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. So you're counting, you're the shepherd, you're counting your animals. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You go to the Levites or to the festival or to the poor on that third year. Every tenth animal belonged to the Lord. You know what that means? If you had ten animals in your flock, you gave one to your tithe. If you had nine animals in your flock, you gave zero. If you had 22 animals, you gave two. Why? Number 10 and number 20. If you had 19, you gave one. Number 10. Does that make sense? But it also means that the percentages were different for each person. But that's how you get around tithing an animal. So I want you to keep these basic facts in mind. That a tithe was always crops or cattle. It was not cash. So keep that in mind now as I explore three major arguments that proponents give for tithing. There are more, but these are the main ones. Number one, you had Abraham. You remember what Abraham did? Abraham give a, gave a tenth of what he had to who? Melchizedek. Read Hebrews 7. We won't have the time to read it today. He gave a tenth of what he had to Melchizedek, the priest. And therefore, the thinking goes that since Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, we ought to give 10% of what we have to Jesus. Very logical argument. It's simply not uh, biblical. 
there's a lot of differences between what Abraham gave and what we give. For example, and even between what Abraham gave and what the Israelites were commanded to give. First of all, Abraham's tithe was, was one time, one time deal. It was not continuing. The Mosaic law requires Israelites to give continually. Secondly, his tithe was voluntary. It was not mandated by God. He was not ordered by God to do it. It was completely voluntary. Number third, it was based on a vow. He made a promise that if he won a war, he would tithe 10% to Melchizedek. The Mosaic law, which came later, expressly forbids making a vow on your tithes. Which, by the way, anytime you are part of a church and the, the pastor or whoever wants you to make a promise that you're going to tithe, don't do it. Not if you believe that that's mandatory. Here's why. Why would God require, or why would God forbid, I should say, vowing 10%? Because he commanded it of the Israelites. That's like vowing to love your wife. Sure, you make that vow when you get married, but do you really have to go before God and say, God, I have come to a serious decision today. I promise to love my wife. I think God's response is, I've already commanded you to do it, guys. I'm not that impressed. If God commands you not to steal, do you really have to make a vow not to steal? No, you just don't steal. God commanded Israel to tithe according to these three kinds of tithes. And so if God had said make a vow, God essentially would be saying, you know, I commanded you to do it, but it's sort of optional. Please promise to do it. Please promise. No. God's not that way. God said, I command you to tithe. I expect you to do it. And so the Mosaic law expressly forbids vowing to tithe. But that's what Abraham did because his, his tithe was different. And not only that, his tithe came from war treasure. He conquered. And he gathered up the war treasure and he gave 10% to Melchizedek. You know what he did with the 90% of that war treasure? He gave it away. He didn't keep a thing because he understood that it wasn't his. He didn't grow it from the land. It wasn't an increase of the land. And so Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek doesn't really apply. Not only that, but Abraham paid a tithe. The point of Hebrews chapter 7 is that Abraham paid a tithe to a priest who lives on forever. Why do you Jews who say you believe in Christ want to go back to a system where you pay tithes to Levites who die. Your father Abraham paid a tithe to an eternal priest. So don't go back to Judaism. The whole argument of Hebrews 7 is, the whole argument of the book is, you're a believer in Jesus Christ now. Don't go back. But that's what a lot of us want to do when we teach the mandatory 10% doctrine. We want to go back to living under the Mosaic law. And it's completely unnecessary, and it's, it's actually harmful, I believe. There's the argument from Malachi chapter 3. That's a, that's a great passage, and I think I've got it up here on the slide. In Malachi chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 10, uh, we, we read, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Sounds like a command, right, for you and me? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And the, the scripture goes on to say 
that, you know, it actually begins a few verses earlier. Would a man rob God? That's what you're doing when you withhold the tithes. And I've heard many sermons preached that say, don't withhold your tithe from God. Would a man rob God? But here's, here's the deal. We need to understand this correctly. In verse 10, the way it begins, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Those aren't metaphorical statements. Those are literal statements. The Levites had actual storehouses that they kept their grain and cattle and sheep and all of that that the people tithe to them. They had actual storehouses. The storehouses were empty because God's people were not supporting his priests. Here his priests are trying to do the work of God and they don't have food to eat. And God says, are you going to rob me? You bring in your Levitical tithe. You bring in the grain. You bring in the cattle and the sheep. And you fill up my storehouses that there might be food in my house. That's why God said they were robbing them. They weren't doing what, they, what God had commanded them to do. Verse 10 continues. It says, and thereby put me to the test. This does not mean what I've seen a lot of churches say it means, which is, Hey, we're going to have a little, little contest. We're going to have a little experiment here. I want you to start tithing. If you're not tithing, and if you don't, if God doesn't bless you, the church will refund your money. I'm sorry. That's, that's not biblical. There are churches that teach that. One big one in Lubbock, in fact. But God says, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Why does he say that? Because of the rest of what he says. He says, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. What's God talking about? He's talking about what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy 28, God says, when you support the Levite priest by bringing in the tithe, if you're faithful with it, I'll bless your land. If you're not, curses will come upon you. And so God says to his people hundreds of years later who are failing to obey him, try me, put me to the test. Bring in the grain, bring in the animals for my, Levit for my Levite priests and test me. Because when you bring it in, I will pour down a blessing. What is that, rain? I'll pour down a blessing. I will rebuke the devourer, locusts. I will not, I will make sure it does not destroy and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. You'll have abundant crops. That's what God says to Malachi. So it does not mean that we are to bring the tithe money into the storehouse, into the church. The storehouse, the church is not the storehouse. The storehouse was the storehouse. There are some principles from this, but it can't be used, I don't think, very accurately to support a mandatory 10% doctrine, especially when the New Testament does not mandate 10% for Christians. There's a third argument. It's the argument from Jesus' example in his teaching. And first of all, the argument says this. You know, the Pharisees, they accused Jesus of many things. They accused him of breaking the Sabbath. They accused Jesus of a lot of different things. But they never accused Jesus of failing to tithe. 
Therefore, the logic goes, Jesus must have tithed, and so should Christians. Well, if you go back to that chart that I showed you earlier, if Jesus tithed cash, he would have tithed around 20% per year on average. And, uh, and, that, and that's fine if, if you want to hold on to the mandatory 10% doctrine and give 20% of your income to the church, I'm good with that. You can give 30 on years 3 and 6. I'll give you year 7. I'll promise. All right? We'll do it, we'll do it the biblical way. But that's not, that, that's not even so. The reality is that Jesus would have only had to pay tithes on his, ca- uh, on his cattle, his sheep, his grain. Jesus did not have those things. And so artisans, fishermen, tradesmen, carpenters like that, priests and poor, they were exempt from paying tithes. The other argument from Jesus' life is from Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, which reads this way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mints and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Some people look at that verse and they say, oh, therefore, you know, look at that. Jesus is commending them for tithing uh, these things. And uh, first of all, those may not have much. Give something. Why? Just to be giving. Just to be giving. For your own heart, for your own benefit. When should I give? You should give regularly. Again, that same verse says on the first day of the week, on a regular basis. Your financial gifts, I don't know how you get paid. There are some rich people out there, they don't even get paid. They just, they've got so much money, they just get dividends. I don't understand that. But, uh, but however you get paid, on a weekly basis, every other week, monthly, any type of other kind of regular schedule... That's one of the reasons we set up online giving, because giving on the first day of the week, that, that principle of regular giving, is so important. Some people say, well, I, I don't want to give all the time. I just want to give once a year. You know, the, the church has bills all throughout the year. You ought to give continually. How should the collection, when we, uh, as a church, take up the money? How should it be handled? This is important. This should not be overlooked. The money that we collect should be handled with transparency and with accountability. Those are biblical principles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, again, that same chapter on giving, verses 16 through 21, Titus and another brother were being sent to receive the contribution. There was accountability there. There was accountability. Anytime you're at a church that wants to hide the books, anytime you think about giving to a charity that wants to hide the books, beware of that. There's a reason. There's a reason they want to hide the books. What should my attitude be when I give? I should give freely. 2 Corinthians 8.3 says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Don't give because I command you to give. I don't command anyone to do anything. I'll make an appeal to you on behalf of Christ, but give out of the free will of your heart. Give intentionally, give willingly. Those Macedonian believers in 2 Corinthians 8, 4, Paul says they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Can you imagine? Here's a church that says, what do you mean there's poor people in Jerusalem, poor saints in Jerusalem? They need food? Please let us give. Please let us give. Can you imagine a church that couldn't wait for the offering? We're begging you, Pastor David, pass the plate again. We're begging you. We want to give. Give cheerfully. 
2 Corinthians 9, 7 says that God loves a cheerful giver. Don't be sad that money's coming out of your bank account. Rejoice that you're making a difference in the lives of people that God loves. And finally, that question we touched on at the beginning, how much should I give? This is a tricky question. How much should I give? It's a tricky question because if we're not careful, behind that question is this real question. What's the least amount that I can give and still be obedient to God? And you can see, if we phrase it that way, there's something wrong. If you ask the wrong question, you'll get the wrong answer. How little can I give and not be sinning? No. We're not going to go there. How do, here's how to determine how much to give. Here it is. Ready? Pray. Seek the Lord about it. Ask God. You know, if you're a believer, you have a relationship with God. Ask God, how much would you have me give? Now listen, if you're wealthy, the Lord may require more of you. Be willing to say yes to God. He may say to you what he said to the rich young ruler, give everything. He may say to you what Zacchaeus said in his own heart, I'm going to give up to half of everything that I have. I don't know. I don't know what God may say to you. If you're poor, I want you to know a couple of things. Number one, there is not a mandatory 10% doctrine in the church that requires you to be crushed under the weight of a law. It's not there. But secondly, I want you to know, God does require you to give. How much? It's up to you. God may say to you what he said to the widow. You got two cents in your account? Give it all. He may say that. I don't know. I don't know what God will say to you. But I know this. If we are generous Christians, if we have a dynamic relationship with the Lord, he'll lead us in how much we are to give. The church will be taken care of. Its bills will be paid. And God will be glorified not because we got a lot of money in the bank account. God is not impressed with the church's bank account, big or small. God is impressed when His children depend on Him and talk to Him about everything. You know, I honestly believe in my heart that with the challenges that our church faces, being in a rented facility, the limitations we have, that if we, as a body of believers, are busy inviting people, being hosp hospitable to people, worshiping truly when we gather together, if we are growing spiritually with one another, if we are serving God actively, and if we're giving biblically, there's no such thing as church impossible. It's church possible. It's what God plans, what God wants for our church.